Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club for January 2015. Happy 2015, everyone. Today, in the month of Janus, we'll be discussing a book organized around dyads, most obviously the one between two girls growing up in a poor Italian neighborhood in the 1940s and 50s. Yes, we are taking on My Brilliant Friend, the first book in what we thought was a trilogy, but may not actually be merely a trilogy, called The Neapolitan Novels by the mysterious Elena Ferrante. I'm Katie Waldman, Slate's Words correspondent, and I am so happy to be joined today by two illustrious critics. They are both stationed in our New York studio, and they are New York Times Book Review editor Perul Segal. Hey, Perul. Hey, Katie. And Slate senior editor David Hagland. Hey, David. Hi, Katie. As always, spoilers are ahead, so if you care about that stuff, you should press pause right now and go read My Brilliant Friend before continuing on with us. Okay. My Brilliant Friend is so many things. It's about the incredibly complicated relationship between two young working-class girls, the narrator Elena and her friend Leela. It examines education, aspiration, money, language, bodies, love, sex. It is steeped in Italy's recent political history. It could be feminist, but it also inhabits a place that feels somehow cut off from ideology, a world of fleeting thoughts and impressions, operating according to emotional logic, dream logic, even some form of malevolent fate. You guys, before we dive into all of this, I just want to note that these books have been so successful since My Brilliant Friend was first translated into English by Anne Goldstein and published in 2012. The latest one, Those Who Leave and Those Who Stay, recently made the New York Times bestseller list. And overall, they seem like the kind of phenomenon that people grab their friends by the collar and recommend and babble about endlessly. So my first question to you is, what do you think is behind the hype and do you think it's justified? Oh, man, that's a really good question. There are every so often novelists from other countries who take hold here. So the one just before Fronte and ongoing is Karlova Kanausgaard from Norway. But before him, Roberto Bolaño, Haruki Murakami. Sometimes I think these writers sort of take hold among American readers and stay there. 
And sometimes, you know, it, it does feel like there's a faddishness and, and they sort of fall away. And I'm kind of curious how much people will be talking broadly about Bolaño in 10 years, say, or Knausgaard for that matter. But Murakami has, has obviously stayed as a big part of American literary culture as well as global literary culture. And and I'm curious what will happen with Ferrante. This was the first book of hers that I'd read. I just finished it last night. I think it's great. I don't know how she broke through. I'd be curious. I haven't read sort of an account of that. But once I started reading this book, it just makes perfect sense that people love it. It's incredibly enjoyable and gripping and the characters are memorable and the writing is is accessible but also striking. So once people start to read, and I totally get it, uh, how a, a writer manages to grab hold of people in the first place, who knows? And I don't know how that was accomplished this time around. I certainly didn't really hear about her until this past year. And it certainly seems to me that 2014 was the big breakout year for Ferrante in the United States. Yeah, I think that's like, there's like a bunch of really, really interesting questions right now, right? Like, why her? Like, to be fair, like, these books do incredibly difficult things. And, like, they're both deeply literary and deeply rooted in myth, but they're so juicy. Like, mm. the pleasures of reading these books cannot be overstated. And I know this because I read them all within two days' time and then went back <laughs> and, like, read her back catalog. And it's crazy. I did nothing. I've done nothing. <laughs> So there's this way that these books are also structured so deeply suspensefully. I was telling somebody that there are more reversals of fortune in these books than there are in Hunger Games. And how is she doing this? How is she writing something that's so deeply literary but so suspenseful, so moving, so juicy, and she's also, like, shedding light on something that I think there's a real hunger for, this, like, you know, looking at female friendships and all its ambivalence and all of its, as you said, Katie, you know, like, all of its danger and excitement and thrill. But then as David says you know, reasonably. Like, I'm sure there are thousands upon thousands of amazing writers who make it into translation that we just don't hear about. And my answer to that question is just the buzz was building and she started to develop a few interesting and important champions, right? So Jhumpa Lahiri started speaking more and more about her work. I think Alice Siebold. And then James Wood wrote his review of My Brilliant Friend in the New Yorker in 2013, actually sort of put on the map, I think, right. in the English-speaking mm. world a little bit. And you mentioned also that there's this hunger for sort of a more clear-eyed, complex look at female friendship. And I've definitely read a lot of stuff to that effect that, you know, what is so satisfying about these novels is that they don't have a candy-colored portrait of female relationships. But as I was reading this book sort of with that in the back of my head – I did not think this was a typical female friendship. Like this was, there are a lot of reasons that I was totally enthralled by this book, but not like, oh, I recognize that incredibly strange, almost parasitic drawing on each other and competition. I mean, I'm a twin, so I guess I see some of it. But do you guys think that the power of this book is in the specificity and sort of the strange weirdness of this particular relationship? Or is it that, you know, she's gotten something right that other writers have been afraid to say? I would say more the former. I mean, to me, so much of my enjoyment of the book is in the character of Leela, Mm -hmm. specifically. And yes, their relationship, and yes, uh, Elena, the the narrator, is fascinating in her own right. But I found, uh, with one exception, which I can get into, the parts of the book I enjoyed most were about Leela and about her ferocity Mm. later on. So when it starts, they're very little and the narrator Elena is talking about their relationship and the way that uh, Leela 
pushed her to do things that she would have been terrified to do by herself. The first really notable one of these is going up the steps to Don Achille's house or to his door. And he's this, as Perul was saying before, the way this book plays with myth, he's this ogre mm -hmm. figure in their minds. And Ferrante evokes so effectively a child's way of thinking that in in a child's mind, he really is this monster. And they don't have the realistic perspective that one might develop a few years down the line, that she, she really inhabits that sort of childlike mind. But from the beginning, Leela is this is herself almost mythical in her in her strength and she's she's an enigma and Elena is so fascinated by her and she conveys that fascination to the reader i think really beautifully yeah, I think I'm with both of you. I think it's the particulars of that dynamic that I find so interesting. But you're right. Like there is, you'll read these reviews and they'll be like, oh, you know, Elena Ferrante, she gets it. She's calling it like it is. <laughs> and for a bunch of us who are reading this, we're like, no, but this is like Tom Ripley. That's where I recognize this. And mm. again, like you, Katie Ivis' sister is very close in age. And I, that's where I see correspondences, not really with my female friends. But I think that, I don't know. But like, then again, like I want to like interrogate this desire for on the part of some women critics and women readers to call it universal. And maybe that there is this fatigue, with, as you put it, this sort of candy-colored perspective of female friendship. There's a desire for women mm -hmm. to see some of their monstrosity reflected in writ large. You know, but that feels it, freeing? It seems to me that, I don't know, but part of the appeal of this book or the brilliance of the book is that Ferrante... I want to say she resists the impulse yeah. to make it universal. She's not trying to make these characters stand in for everyone, even though she is drawing on these sort of archetypal stories yeah. in a way that, that puts them in a, I don't, I don't really like the word universal, right. but this much larger context. Yeah. But nonetheless, the characters themselves are so specific, not only in terms of their personalities, but also their place, right? So it's exactly. very much about exactly. Naples yeah. in the... So when it begins, it's right after World War II, and she doesn't dwell on the history. You have to kind of pick it up as you go, but it's this is a poor city yeah. in a very poor moment, and she lives in a poor neighborhood of that poor city. And so a lot of this book is about lack and yeah. is about right. poverty and is about, you know, seeing those who have more. But the, it's so interesting that I, when I was going through and I was reading reviews, only one review I've read of this book deals with class in more than a fleeting so way. Weird. Only one. But so I think that two things are happening, right? That she's created these incredibly particular characters in a very particular economic situation surrounded by a very particular kind of menace and male violence that we just, right. reading it today, you can say you have equivalents, but you kind of don't, the kind of violence that they have in this book. And I started actually tallying it up in the first book and I gave up because I was like, <laughs> I'm missing the book. Mm. Like you're reading this book and it's like, this woman gets raped, this woman gets beaten up, this child gets thrown out of a window. Like these books are more violent than Tarantino movies. But it is, it's a violence born of a very particular historical moment and yet that's being elided in so much of the conversation about these books. And that's an interesting tension for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I also wonder if some of that has to do with the kind of childhood perspective that is governing most of this book, because we're aware reading it of the specificity of the moment and of the socioeconomic circumstance. And you even see this when there's sort of this atmosphere that's vague and nebulous and it's foreboding and there's all this apprehension and this fear. But they don't know that all of that flows from the political past, you know, like the World War II legacy that's like still making itself felt in their town. They see it as this universal thing that's in the air and mysterious and just kind of circulating. And so I wonder if there's a way that 
Ferrante writes about these forces almost causes us to forget how particular they are. I don't know, because the children don't narrate the book, right? Mm. The book is written 60 years later by Elena, and she constantly goes in and out of a childlike perspective. And at one point, when she's describing some sort of like incredibly gory episode, there's this amazing paragraph. I'm going to bungle it because I don't have it in front of me. But she says something like... Um, Actually, like, I have no nostalgia for my childhood because there was so much violence. And another part, she starts listing all the words. She goes, remember this part? She goes, um, tuberculosis, yes. laths, work, all of the diseases. And she's like, this was like the landscape of violence. So she does definitely move in and out of that perspective, you know. So I, I don't know if we can ever entirely forget the causes of things, the roots of things, because she's so hyper aware of it. And especially in the later books, we see when she becomes more politically involved and engaged exactly how deeply she understands these things. Sure. But she and does maybe, it so, yeah. Go oh, ahead, sorry, Katie. I was going to say maybe we should read a little bit from that passage, which is on 33. Our world was like that, full of words that killed croup, tetanus, typhus, gas, war, lathe, rubble, work, bombardment, bomb, tuberculosis, infection. With these words in those years, I bring back the many fears that accompanied me all my life. And then she goes on to list in this kind of extravagant, but it's not funny, but there's some weird tonal thing happening. But she is talking about all the normal things that could suddenly kill you. Yeah. And it just keeps accumulating. But she does also, throughout much of the book, hew very closely to the perspective of the time, mm. right? There's this moment when she does step back, but to make this much broader, even aphoristic remark, she says, children don't know the meaning of yesterday, of the day before yesterday, or even of tomorrow. Everything is this now. And then it goes on. The street is this. The doorway is this. The, the stairs mother are this, is this. The mother yeah, is this. Yeah. I love that part. But she actually writes so much of it in that mood or that perspective, this, 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 rather than stepping out and saying, it was 1947 right. and, yeah. you know, Italy yeah. had lost. Da, da, da. Yeah. Instead, yeah. she puts you there. She knows the context. The narrator does have an outside perspective, but the book doesn't dwell in that later perspective. It actually kind of brings you into the moment in this very striking way. And then for me, my favorite part of the book was when I'm trying to remember how old they were, but probably 13 or 14. At some point, they befriend, it was probably Pascale. There are these these male friends who I do at a certain point become difficult to... She could, to yes. A swirl of males. Yeah, a swirl of males. That should be a, the new collective of, noun yeah. for <laughs> that type of male acquaintance. But Pascale is more distinct in my mind than some, and I think it's him who introduces them, introduces Leela to sort of the historical context and to ideology. You mentioned ideology before and the fact that, well, in this neighborhood and in this city, the dynamics that you are experiencing have pasts yeah. and they have yeah. history. And it goes back to who's a communist and who was a collaborator and, you know, who is with the Gamora and all of this. And that moment I just found so powerful because yeah. I had I would sort of was dimly aware of it and dimly aware that, yes, this is post-war and yada, yada. But I, I didn't have the kind of, you know, real historical knowledge yeah. that perhaps yeah. an Italian reader might bring to this. This was it was pretty vague to me. And then it was sort of brought yeah. home. With yeah, such but the, force. And it's like the amazing thing about this book is that we learn things with the characters. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, so we have that pleasure of just reading this amazing story. And then suddenly they reach an age where they're becoming more aware of things. And we as readers suddenly realize, oh, this is going to be this kind of book also. And that's right. really a great, fun part of it. But I think the style is just a miracle, right? She can go in and out of these things. She's never preachy. Can we talk a little bit about the voice? Sure. Right? Like what yes. kind of prose is this? It's not beautiful, but it's what does it right. do? Right, it's not flowery. 
It's just I don't know. intense. Right. Which yeah. is such a sort of empty word. I don't know how to say it. Elena has this way of saying things like, I'm not quite sure what about her posture disturbed me as she crossed the street. But basically, she like puts you in this like heightened state where everything could mean something else. Things are always sort of more than they seem or turning into other things. And I think you're just very, very aware as you read that, you know, a copper pot is not always a copper pot or it could just explode at any moment. There's this sort of energy or violence under the surface of things that I think is really compelling. Yeah. Also, I would say her voice is versatile. There's a moment late in the book when Elena bathes Leela and she's talking about seeing her naked for the first time. David, do you want to read it for us? Sure. So this, like I said, is a moment when Elena is seeing Leela naked for the first time. Leela is about to get married, and it's very late in the book. And Elena first says, I had never seen her naked. I was embarrassed. And then there's there's one other sentence. Let me skip ahead to this line. At the time, it was just a tumultuous sensation of necessary awkwardness a state in which you cannot avert the gaze or take away the hand without recognizing your own turmoil, without, by that retreat, declaring it, hence without coming into conflict with the undisturbed innocence of the one who is the cause of the turmoil, without expressing by that rejection the violent emotion that overwhelms you, so that it forces you to stay, to rest your gaze on the childish shoulders, on the breasts and stiffly cold nipples, on the narrow hips and the tense buttocks, on the black sex, on the long legs, on the tender knees, on the curved ankles, on the elegant feet, and to act as if it's nothing, when instead everything is there, present, Mm. in the poor dim room, amid the worn furniture, on the uneven, water-stained floor, and your heart is agitated, your veins inflamed. So that is one sentence. (laughs) And it's all a way of her expressing this moment where she basically can't look away. Because to look away is to acknowledge the power that the sight of her has on her. And it's very sexually charged, this moment. And it, I mean, you know, one could ask to what extent is their relationship sexual? It is and it isn't. I mean... I don't think that's any kind of key to understanding their relationship, but at the same time, it is one of the many elements of their yeah. intense And friendship. then there's what happens like after that moment, right? she's preparing her friend for her marriage, mm-hmm. and right. like, it elicits this tangle of feelings of envy and desire and admiration, and she becomes obsessed with the fact that her friend is going to lose her virginity. Right. She's preparing her friend to have sex with her husband, presumably, and her friend is going to lose her virginity before she will. So she becomes desperate to find her boyfriend and get it done. You know, yeah. And right. it's just this like, incredible <laughs> moment of, of how envy and beauty and love mixed together become action and really interesting mm. kinds of action. And the book is full of action. Like it's, it's been called interior, and it is. But it's compared to myth, I think, so frequently because of that voice, which is very plain. And, because, and yet then is capable of doing right, this long, right. Absolutely. sinuous, clauses, yeah. sinewy sort of writing. And then it also moves f- from desire, from personality to the action that reveals who we are. Right. Yeah. yeah. I would Greek also way, note I about this passage, David, that you read, I think it's one of the only physical descriptions of a body that's not marked by revulsion in this yeah. entire book. I mean, most of the time when she is describing bodies, she's she's talking about them sort of overflowing their edges, like she reaches puberty and gets a little bit fat, and she's 
you know, castigating herself for that. She's repulsed by her mother's body, doesn't want to turn into her mother. Sex is this incredibly fraught sort of molestation a lot of the time. And it was really striking to me that this is... It's it's, pure. Yeah. It's clean in this Mm -hmm. interesting way. Um, There is, though, my favorite description of uh, Leela's body, which I think is early in the book, when she's little, and she describes her thin like a salted anchovy that Mm. gave off an odor of wildness. (laughs) And I love that part also because as we're talking about voice, they're very sparing metaphors, and the ones that exist kind of just leap out at you, you know, because it's not a showy voice at all. It's not a showy persona. Just to give you an example of the plain language that I think you were talking about, Perul, one of the first lines that just hit me in the face was early on, Elena says, Leela appeared in my life in first grade and immediately impressed me because she was very bad. (laughs) Which is like that childlike voice also, right, that she can slip into. Yeah. I also think that there's an affinity between Leela, or at least as she's portrayed by Elena, and the prose style itself. Like there's a precision in the prose and sort of a fire in it that I relate to Leela, who is described as angular and almost linear. And I sort of see her as this ink drawing, you know, Um, who's all straight lines and and sharpness. And there's something sort of merciless and sharp about the language, too. Elena herself, you know, draws this line between Leela and her own writing, Hmm. right? I mean, at a certain point, she reads, when she goes away to the beach for the summer. She writes these letters to Leela that Leela never answers. At this point, they're, what, maybe 12 or 13? And then finally, Leela writes her this long letter. And she's blown away. And she's blown away by... And what she says is that Leela had a way of writing so eloquently, but it sounded like she was talking to you. Do you want to actually read that? Sorry, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, no, I, I think, but I think you're exactly right that there's a way in which she, I mean, we haven't really talked yet about the way that Elena feeds off Leela intellectually. Mm. That's so key. And that's from very early on. One of the first things you, you learn about both of them, but Leela first in a way or more dramatically is that Leela is the smartest person in the class. Let the record show that I got so happy when you brought up this point. I raised my hand as a kid (laughs) wanting to be called on. She makes Um, for great radio. (laughs) Well, so why don't, Parul, why don't you read that passage? Yeah, it's 227. Okay, here we, I'm going to start like mid-sentence. She expressed herself in sentences that were well-constructed and without error, even though she'd stopped going to school. But further, she left no trace of effort. You weren't aware of the artifice of the written word. I read, and I saw her. I heard her. The voice set in the writing overwhelmed me, enthralled me, even more than when we talked face to face. It was completely cleansed of the dross of speech, of the confusion of the oral. It had the vivid orderliness that I imagined would belong to conversation, if one were so fortunate as to be born from the head of Zeus, and not from the head of the Grecos, the Cerulos. I was ashamed of the childish pages I had written to her. I don't think I've seen this in a long time, in fiction, just that pure admiration for how somebody else's mind moves. Not mm-hmm. for what their mind gets them. It gets them this money. It gets them this job. It gets them this power. Just this pure awe that Elena has and that we grow to have for how Leela thinks. And like it's shown to us in really interesting ways, right? She's can learn almost effortlessly. She can think through language and speak through language in a particular way. She can make these disparate connections. And as the books go on, the beautiful thing is in, in the second and third books, we start seeing that like... She has a mind that 
anything can open up, she becomes fixated on from Samuel Beckett to computer encryption to interior design. So it's... it's spoiler alert. Spoiler. <laughs> interior design. That's where it gets interesting. But so it's this really amazing sort of pure description of something that I don't think I've seen in in books. I mean, we were used to seeing like one character envying somebody else for power, for beauty, but not for just this kind of muscle. Right. And, and actually, yeah. oh, go ahead, Katie. Sorry. I was just going to point out quickly that and yet, we never hear this enchanting voice. We don't actually get any snippets from the letter. Like, it's all mediated through Elena. I mean, that sort of raised the question for me of how much of this is Elena projecting right. this power, this force, this sort of grace and fluidity of expression onto her friend. But David, I want to hear what you were about to say. Well, now I want to respond to that because I think that's a really mm. smart point that it is partly a projection. I mean, there, it has to be. Part of it is is the way that Elena is riveted by this person who is not her. And we haven't even mentioned, I don't think, that the way this book begins oh, yeah. Yeah. is in the you know present, uh, so to speak, and Leela has disappeared. Mm. She's gone. And that's what prompts this whole you know, meditation or reverie or whatever it is. But it's an act of revenge. It's an aggressive act. She says, you're trying to erase you. I'm going to write you down. Yes. So yeah. it's yeah. not. So we're getting an incredibly unreliable narrator right. on a really questionable quest. Right. <laughs> so you know. Which gets back to that kind of competitive aspect yeah. of it, which is another thing that I think is wonderful and gripping about the book and which resists any kind of rah, 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 Reductive, you go girl, yeah. whatever. Yeah. She's doing this in a way to say, no, I'm going to win. And there's so much of that throughout, you know, so as I mentioned, you know, early on, you learn that Leela is the smartest person in, in their class when they're very, very young, smarter than the boys, smarter than all the girls. And then Elena wants to be that smart as well. And she is also very bright. And then they go, you know, sort of back and forth through the first few years of school. But to go back to the issues of class, education is a very fraught thing in their neighborhood where one, it, it, it can be expensive, and two, it's of dubious value. An education for girls in particular. Yes, specifically. And so eventually Leela stops going to school and Elena continues on. And for a while, Leela keeps asking her what she's studying now and she's getting out books from the library and she's keeping up and she's going past her. And then in the end, there's this shift that feels tragic when Leela kind of ties her wagon to this man and at least appears to stop learning in that way or stop reading as intensely and as widely as, as she was. And then Elena does surpass her, but it feels very sad. Yeah. And then there's this constant seesawing of power and prestige. and But again, as, as Katie said, we see this through Elena's kind of dubious perspective, right? And there are moments later on in the books where I mean, we'll see Elena going over with this sort of like, okay, now Leela's working in this factory and I've written these books and I can now lord it over her. And she'll be like, oh, you know, I know that, you know, Leela's going to bring me down or find some way to sort of exert her dominance. And instead we see Leela saying something incredibly sweet and incredibly – so it's you're, you're constantly – or, or as I found myself constantly questioning this perspective of this woman, you know, this who's shown to us to be dominant and ruthless and ferocious, and at many points seems absolutely beleaguered, deprived of an education in these sorts of hopeless marriages and hopeless jobs. And again, something I don't think I, a lot of reviews touched on. It was sort of taken for granted that this was, you know, a story of a healthy rivalry mm. and not <laughs> something that was completely tinctured by... Yeah. I actually wonder... 
so there are things that I guess they compete about, and that's uh, learning. Um, and then there's that strange moment where Leela absents herself from school, or she decides that she wants to start a shoe factory. And so she creates this sort of like magical design for shoes that is, <laughs> I mean, that again, that's sort of myth creeping in. It's like the shoes that are unbelievably beautiful and fit so well and take forever to make. And uh, suddenly, Elena is captivated by shoes, and she's right, right there with Leela. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways in which this book feels mythic or has a fairy tale quality is that the jobs that these people do have in this neighborhood are so, you know, they're medieval, right? There's the fruit seller and the shoemaker mm -hmm. and the pharmacist, and they're not all going off to work in a factory. And then those shoes come back in this dramatic way at the end, which also has a fairy tale quality to it. So Leela marries this man named Stefano, who runs a grocery. But in the lead up to the marriage, they involve the Solars, who we haven't talked about yet, but are crucial characters and connect on a lot of these things. They appear to have raped this poor young woman, Ada, and they flaunt their relative wealth. They drive around in this car. And one of them, Marcello, woos Leela for a long time. And her family really kind of pushes her to accept his courtship because he has money and because he offers this way out of their poverty. But then Stefano arrives and he has some money as well. And so she accepts him instead because basically he seems like a better version of that. Not Also to thumb her nose a little bit because she's yes. like that. To yeah, say, yeah. you may be the most powerful family in our slum, but I'm right. going to go with the grocer. Yes. But then as the marriage approaches, she starts to see things that worry her from Stefano. And one of them is that he's involving the Solaris. He seems to be compromising with them in a way that she is so adamant that they do not. You know, it's funny. My wife read this book before I did, and she mentioned that it ends on this cliffhanger. Yeah. And then she sort of teased herself for calling it a cliffhanger. What it is, is that Marcello walks in wearing the first pair of sort of designer shoes that Leela made with her brother. It does feel like a sort of dun-dun-dun, you know, because that's where it ends and you don't know how she's going to react. But it feels like a violation and it feels like a horrible compromise on Stefano's part that he, because he actually is the one who bought the shoes. So he must have given them to Marcello in some way. And it is also, I think, it seemed to me, a sort of self-conscious inversion in some way of Cinderella. Right. Right? Rather than the beautiful woman who, you know, leaves behind this glass slipper given to her by a fairy godmother or whatever the story is. Instead, it's the man who right. walks in wearing the shoes that this beautiful young woman has labored over and designed and created and, and which do feel like a, an intellectual or creative act. Yeah. And this is the final scene in the book, and it's almost like a Shakespearean comedy. You end with a wedding, but it's like a funhouse mirror or like creepy, distorted, forced Shakespearean comedy as, as though this is where things are supposed to end up, but nothing is working. Um, the different tables are dissatisfied because they serve different calibers of wine. There's just like this incredibly unnerving apprehensive atmosphere. It's just, yeah, it's the version of the marriage plot. Yeah. You know, that it's going to end with a wedding, but... but it, yeah, yeah, but it's going to be a frightening thing instead yeah. of a celebratory one. I mean, I think these books are about, like, they're about survival. And you start to understand that wedding is an act of 
an attempt at survival and an attempt at safety. I think this book is also really good at how women are indoctrinated into cults of caution and mm-hmm. safety, you know, and well, maybe if I'm smart enough, I'll be safe. Maybe. Oh, there's an amazing, amazing um, sentence that Elena says, because Elena is incredibly creepy and, and her creepiness manifests as this <laughs> compulsive need to be liked. Yes. So she's like, well, my teacher likes me and my mom doesn't really, she doesn't, you know, really get the script or whatever. And she says at one point, she's like, I wanted to wrap myself in everybody's liking me as if it was shimmering armor. I'm again bungling that. But like that's how she's trying to protect herself. Beauty is seen as as, as a kind of protection. And, and then we learn in this community what a mixed blessing beauty is. But mm-hmm. so again, this this wedding that was supposed to be protection not only for Lila herself, but for her family and for her her people, now we start to see that you can't keep the Solaris's out. You know, so everybody's sort of in cahoots and they're at the same time playing another game to sort of keep themselves safe. So you start to see how fraught, how dangerous everything is in this particular world at this particular time. Yeah, there is this sort of tremendous instability and volatility that sort of fastens onto different things. Like sometimes it's based on the political schisms that are still in the neighborhood. Other times it's this kind of chauvinism or or the the threat of rape. But I do want to talk about that copper pot that explodes. Um, I think it's on 227 because for me, this completely crystallized just like the... She talks about the mutable fury of things and just how things become other things and Mm -hmm. in this kind of chaotic, uncontrollable way. And whereas Leela is always there with her vivid orderliness, that's one way that her speech is described with that letter, she can't quite keep up with the pace of everything changing. It's on page 229. Uh, She writes... A few evenings earlier, something had happened that had really scared her. Marcello had left. The television was off. The house was empty. Rena was out. Rena was her brother. Her parents were going to bed. She was alone in the kitchen, washing the dishes, and was tired, really without energy, when there was an explosion. She had turned suddenly and realized that the big copper pot had exploded. Like that, by itself. It was hanging on the nail where it normally hung, but in the middle there was a large hole and the rim was lifted and twisted and the pot itself was all deformed, as if it could no longer maintain its appearance as a pot. And then she says, It's this sort of thing, Lila concluded, that frightens me, more than Marcello, more than anyone, and I feel that I have to have a solution, otherwise everything, one thing after another, will break. Everything, everything. And I think also this um, harkens back to when Don Achille is murdered, and Leela describes his blood also splattering across a copper pot. So there's a lot of strange stuff happening with copper in this book. I was wondering what you guys made of this passage. There's always a threat of madness and derangement in all of Fronte's books. And in some books, the characters go explicitly, amazingly, mm-hmm. violently mad. Days of abandonment is one. But she said this in like one of her sort of rare interviews. She said, the following quote, she says, My women are strong, educated, self-aware, and aware of their rights, but at the same time subject to unexpected breakdowns, to subservience of every kind, to mean feelings. And, I mean, right, like, so we see Leela, this otherwise entirely sensible character, having this sort of experience. But then also, as the book proceeds, she starts being susceptible to this funny condition that she can only call the margins of things blurring mm-hmm. and dissolving. Yeah. Right? So there's this sort of threat of derangement in ordinary life all the time, which again can feel mythic, right? Because this is a book that seems to me to be about all kinds of human will, right? Human will and like us, how do we become ourselves? How do we, you know, self-actualize? And yet we are so open. Other people are contagions. Forces are contagions. Mm -hmm. Odd spirits are afloat. Copper, you know, pots become misshapen. So there is always that thread, I think, of 
of disorder and of anarchy. That's right. much more than just, you know, the crime in the city and in the slums, but it's something in actual biological life itself. Does that yeah. make sense? It does. Well, and also there's the character of Melina who feels like the the sort of scarecrow, yeah. uh, if that's the right metaphor. But she's the madwoman of the neighborhood. She had an affair with this man, Donato Serratore. Yeah, what a winner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who is himself a really interesting character. So they had this kind of affair. His wife then, you know, it sort of implied, sort of took them away. They, the family moved, and Melina loses her mind. And, and she, I think her husband had died. Uh, she was a widow, Murdered, if I remember correctly. Murdered, yeah. Okay, yeah. And so, and so she's poor. She's losing it. She's scorned, you know, because also, obviously, she, she had an affair with this married man. So, you know, she bears the brunt of that shame from the neighborhood as well. And she won't let him go. And she tries to, like, she goes after his wife, doesn't she? And she's yeah, like, all she these mischievous plots. Yeah, she things from a window and, at some yeah, point. Yeah. She's really just – but so she, as a result, I mean, she's the sort of frightening figure of a woman who has lost her mind. And meanwhile, this Donato, we later learn, is a poet oh, yeah. Yeah. and publishes a book of poems and brings her a copy with some kind of inscription sort of thanking her for – for being his muse yeah. in some way. And then he later molests Elena when uh, she has that summer at the beach. And Who doesn't she, quite mind entirely? Yeah, well, that's a fascinating... Yeah. I mean, we should, <laughs> that's I mean, an amazing sex or whatever scene. That's whatever amazing. scene it was, yeah, yeah, because she... Well, she is experiencing, you know, sexual pleasure for really, I think, maybe the first time. Yeah. I think she even says that she had not learned to pleasure herself, right. even though some girls her age might have figured that right. out. You know, she's saying this now with the perspective of the 60-year-old. And whose son, like, this molester, this right. winner, Donato's son, becomes the great love interest in these books, Nino. Right. Okay. But I think Melina's interesting also because I think she's an example, especially for those young girls watching her. And there's an amazing scene where Leela sort of doesn't scorn her and goes and sort of like walks next to Melina when Melina's walking along the city, along the sidewalk. And I think she's eating bits of soap and having this absolute mm-hmm. breakdown. And there's this this thing in this book that I think that Melina represents a little bit how lust can derange people. Yearning, sexual yearning, I think, can really break people down in this way that especially women, in a way that makes them vulnerable to mockery and perhaps vulnerable the, to ridicule. Yeah, and the friendship maybe is another protection against that. I mean, one of the ways that the friendship manifests is in this paper that Elena writes about Dido, right? And she uses the insights that she gets from conversation with Leela in it. But basically what you have is this, I guess, platonic friendship, although it, they're captivated by each other and very dependent on each other and sort of enmeshed. But you have these two women collaborating on a piece about the derangements that lust uh, creates in this other woman. I just thought that was a really interesting dynamic, too. To go back for a second to that scene of molestation, the fact that Elena does talk about the pleasure that she felt in that moment, to me, highlights how totally willing Ferrante is to go right into complexity and ambiguity and ambivalence, even in the most fraught moments. I mean, it is clearly, he is clearly molesting her. There's not any ambiguity about that. And he does become this frightening figure for her. And she's, what, 14 or something. As the book wore on, I did find it, I did find myself having to remind myself how young they were. Because, you know, Leela gets married at 16 and, you know, they're maturing so quickly. But, yeah, as you noted, Perul, she also says, you know, it felt really good. And, yeah, and, and there yeah. was a part of her that was enjoying it. And that in some ways makes it even more frightening. But 
but yeah, she but does this own is, up to it. Yeah, and she's she's so good at sort of like ambivalence of all kinds, maternal ambivalence, the repul maternal ambivalence is kind. She talks about outright repulsion. And so for some people, you know, it's it's been known and talked about that Elena Ferrante is a pseudonym. We don't know very much about her, only her publishers and her identity, and that this kind of cloaking has permitted her to write about deeply charged, risky, tabooed subjects. Right. I wonder to what extent, did, I mean, did you guys find yourself thinking about that at all as, you know, it's certainly a big part of um, kind of the coverage of these books as they've become more popular in the U.S. and, you know, sort of this mysterious right. woman. And yeah. it's it's pretty effective. I mean, whatever Ferrante's own reasons for that cloaking, it also works as a pretty effective marketing device because she is this mystery person. I mean, I even I've seen um, anguished tweets <laughs> from uh, women who I follow on Twitter saying, oh, Ferrante better not be a man. Right. I'll be so angry. <laughs> Uh, I don't think that she is, but, you know. and I would just be upset if she weren't from Naples. I right. think that's really what gets to me. If I found out she was from Rome, forget it. But, no, and I think it's especially interesting because these books have been published, you know, while we've been seeing the great multi-volume opus of Karlovy Knausgaard, who we seem to know everything about, from the kind of tea he likes to drink to his whatever. We know everything. So it's been a sort of provocative move. I think, as David has put it, you know, a, a savvy publicity. Movie. Yeah. Just, you know. And I'm so glad you brought up Nausgaard because he was sort of lurking in the back of my head as I was right. reading this book. And actually, I remember, Pruel, you brought up a passage from Nausgaard in a previous audiobook club. Um, and you were talking about, I think, he sees the sun and he just wants so desperately to ascribe it some significance. Yeah. And I just remember when I got to page 176, Leela has this episode of the dissolving margins mm. and she sees the moon and she sees the mass of a storm advancing across the sky. I'm sort of half reading here and disfiguring the shining disk, reducing it to its true nature of rough, insensate material. Leela imagined she saw, she felt, as if it were true, her brother was breaking. I guess what struck me there is Ferrante doesn't have to work to make things meaningful. It just sort of happens naturally. There's something intense about the way she perceives and renders things. But the meeting is dangerous. And I started thinking, like, Nausgaard just wants all, everything to be freighted, but what if it's bad? I think there's also a difference between, you know, Knausgaard, the writer, Knausgaard, the, the character in his books, mm. as well as Ferrante, the writer, and Elena. Because Elena is, Elena is in complete chaos, right? Like she wants things to have meaning. She wants to be a writer. She wants to think well. So we see a lot of that. I think we see a lot of that same uh, anxiety in her, right? Because they're both books about, you know, portrait of the artist, you know, becoming, right? We're reading these books about uh, how they develop themselves and those key friendships. So actually, I do, I, I might have to disagree with you. I actually see a lot of that same sort of fumbling and looking back mm -hmm. and wanting things to have meaning and the right meaning. And then her envy of Leela, who seems to see things correctly, learns things fast, is able to put things in language beautifully as a source of envy. Yeah, I just think that there's something sort of uncontrollable about the significances in things. And Nascard thinks that he can just sort of create meaning and put it in his book, and that's sort of his project. And I think that Ferrante is a little more bit more to... scared of mm, it, mm, of mm. the way it can transform. Yeah, no, I think I'd agree with that. Would you guys recommend this book to our readers and listeners? Everybody should read this book. Yeah, I mean, I, why wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, evangelize, evangelizing for this <laughs> just book. Just be denying yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I should say, I mean, I, so I just finished the first one last night, mm -hmm. uh, but I certainly hope to read the subsequent ones. And my thought is I want to read 
two and three before number four comes out. Yeah. So I can read that as soon as it arrives. And I will say, I mean, I read the first volume of Canals Garden. Ah, maybe I'll read the rest. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but these ones, these I ones. definitely... Yeah, it's cinematic. And there's this yeah. urgency. You know, it's like you feel like she has to tell this story. And there's the suspense you talked yeah. about early on, Perul, the way she structures them and all the reversals uh, so that the power dynamic is shifting. And then she's, then she's with Stefano. And then, you know, she's left school. I mean, yeah. she ma- manages to make all of those things partly because of the way... She structures those revelations. She manages to make it feel like a mystery that's unfolding for you. And like I said, it opens up with, she disappeared, where'd she go? Yeah. Well, thank you so much, guys. I also agree. I think everyone should read this right now. It will take you one night, probably. It's that engrossing. And a program note. Our next audio book club selection is Redeployment, the National Book Award-winning collection of stories about the Iraq War and its aftermath by Phil Clay. Read it and join us for our discussion on February 6th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audio Book Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Perul Segal and David Hagland, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. Thank you.